Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Most of you have heard about the butterfly effect. The butterfly flapping its wings in New Mexico can cause a hurricane in China. It may take a very long time, but the connection is real. If the butterfly had not flapped its wings at just the right point in space and time, the hurricane would not have happened. It's how the world today works, except with modern communication, it happens at warp speed. Coronavirus and terrorism are just two such examples. Even for those that try and eschew globalization, the protest is futile. The world, its people, its governments, and yes, its companies are deeply interwoven and interconnected. It's why we do ourselves such a disservice as citizens and as a nation if we don't truly understand the world and our place in it. If you understand this as well as my guest, Richard Haas. Dr. Richard Haas is president of the Council on Foreign Relations. He's an experienced diplomat and policymaker who served as a senior Middle East advisor to President George H.W. Bush and the director of the policy planning staff under Secretary of State Colin Powell. He is the author or editor of over 14 books, including A World in Disarray. And it is my pleasure to welcome Richard Haas back to this program. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Well, it's great to have you back. Have we learned finally, maybe as a result of, of this virus, and I guess we didn't learn entirely from terrorism, that borders don't matter sometimes, that the world is deeply interconnected? Well, should we have learned that? Yes. Have all of us learned it? Uh, no. But that is the lesson of the pandemic. As you say, it's the lesson of climate change. It's the lesson of 9-11. Uh, it's a lesson of a lot of history that what starts in this case in a city in Wuhan, China, doesn't, doesn't stay there. And you know what flows from this is that nothing is local for long. Our oceans are not moats. Uh, borders, as you suggest, and sovereignty are not barriers. And what we therefore need to do is reject the notion that isolationism, essentially burying our collective heads in the sand, offers any serious strategy. It doesn't. If we bury our heads in the sand, we'll be washed out by the, by the tide. Uh, so we need to we need to be ready for these things, and we need to be involved in the world if we can be to, to to head them off. That's the that ought to be the basic lesson of recent history. And why hasn't it been? What is the complexity or the inherent bug in the system, if you will, in the political system that makes this so difficult for people to understand? Look, it's it's a it's a good question. Uh, in part, it might be that recent American involvement in certain parts of the world have been costly. Uh, things like Iraq and Afghanistan, it gave foreign policy a bad, left understandably a bad taste in people's mouths. May have been that when the Cold War ended three decades ago, a lot of people said, okay, well, we can put our feet up now. God knows we have all sorts of domestic challenges. And for a lot of people, they would say those are, those are more uh, pressing. But the reason I wrote this new book called The World, uh, a brief introduction, is to basically get people to understand that our fate here at home is inextricably linked to what happens uh, in the world. And what we choose to do or not to do in the world will in turn have a big effect upon it. So this, this is a giant feedback loop. And it's in our self-interest to try to influence the, the course of events. The good news, by the way, is we can do what we need to do and should do in the world and still do what we need to do and should do at home. This idea that we have to choose that somehow, which a lot of people in our political system advocate, that we can't afford to do things in the world because we have to do things at home is simply not true. We have the resources, we have the bandwidth to do both. Can we separate, though, the, the reality that the world is as interconnected as we're talking about 
And defining our place with regard to the U.S., first of all, defining our place in it. Talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. The, the first is simply the, is a fact of life. The world matters. Globalization is a reality. But then we get to your question, how we respond to it, what policies we put in place. That's a choice. And that's a serious public matter. Uh, what should be our priorities in the world? Uh, you know, some would say, for example, it should be to promote democracy. The president would say it should be to promote American exports. Other would say it ought to be to keep the, the peace. Uh, what I'd say is probably can't be debated is, is the question of how we go about it. I would simply say that unilateralism, trying to do things in the world by ourselves doesn't make sense. These challenges are coming at us. We need partners. Good news is we have partners, we have allies, we should work with, we should work with them because unilaterally on our own, we can't, we can't turn, turn things around on terrorism or climate change or pandemics. We need, we need essentially most of the countries in the world, all, most of the governments in the world to, to work with us. Because communication is so much faster today, the speed at which events move is so much faster, do we have appropriate historical precedent to try and understand this moment with respect to globalization? It's a good question. Not exactly, but but good enough. After World War II, the United States understood that if it didn't want to repeat the lessons of the first half of the 20th century and the two awful world wars and a depression, we needed something different. And for the last 70 years, we've put into place a whole new set of international arrangements and institutions, alliances, and so forth. And so that shows to me a real creative, uh, sustained bout of policymaking. And I would say now in this global world, we need something no less creative. We need to think about how do we uh, tackle climate change so these fires and floods and storms do not keep growing in number and, and severity. How do we prepare ourselves for a COVID-25 or COVID-30 or the emergence of some bacteria that uh, antibiotics can't, can't treat? How do we deal with or pre- prevent or protect ourselves from the next 9-11? So, so the answer is, yeah, I think the historical precedent is that we've got to be creative and we've got to work with others. And the last thing we can do is somehow assume that what's going on now is an exception, that it's a one-off. It's anything but. And, and in some respects, it was always simpler to think of this in the terms of great power politics as opposed to the kind of multipolar world we live in today. Yeah, and I think it's complicated. Great power politics haven't gone away. You know, China is a rising power. Russia is a disgruntled uh, power with you know, 2,000 nuclear devices. So we still have the old security agenda. North Korea has nuclear weapons. Iran may want them. Uh, the challenge is how do we deal with the old agenda? At the same time now, we deal with this whole new agenda uh, with all these global uh, issues. And what's going to make it even harder, quite frankly, is dealing with both agendas at a time that we're stretched to here at home, that we're spending trillions of dollars uh, on the American uh, people and businesses. We've got, what, unemployment rates of 20, 25 percent. So coming up with the resources and the bandwidth to deal with the world, but at the same time, we've got to deal with these challenges at home ain't going to be easy, obviously. But it's necessary because, again, the lesson of this crisis is that we ignore the world at our peril. And what is that peril? How much worse does it get if we try and pull up the drawbridge, if we really don't accept the reality of what we're talking about? Oh, I don't even want to contemplate it. Could have multiple terrorist attacks on the scale of 9-11 or worse, terrorists could get a hold of much more dangerous devices. 
we could have future pandemics. Uh, climate change is probably the most obvious uh, crisis because this is a slow motion crisis. It's coming at us every day, every week, every month, every year. It keeps getting worse and it's gaining ground. And the options don't get better with time. Uh, the options get narrower. They get, they get more expensive. They promise you less, but they cost more. So time isn't, uh, time isn't on our side. The trend is not our friend here. So yes, things can get a lot worse and things will get worse unless we, we start acting now. The good news is it's not too late. You know, this is not, I, I'm not a fatalist. What I am though, is that someone who believes that decisions have consequences. So what we do and what we decide not to do will, will be truly consequential. And yet this pushback to globalization, this trend towards isolation, is something that we see happening not just here in the U.S., but around the world. Yeah, it's, it's, again, it's the reason I wrote this new book uh, about the world, because I worry that too many young people graduating from high school or college learn nothing about the world. I think our educational institutions are letting uh, our people down badly uh, by not requiring that they study the world. Our major media barely barely covers it, so it's out there, but you have to go find it, uh, and it's not easy. So it's worse in the United States than some countries, but many other countries, the same thing holds. You know, look, I understand that people are busy with their lives, but we've got to we've got to prepare citizens, we've got to arm citizens with the tools they need to to make good choices, whether in their personal lives or say this November when people go to the polls, uh, how are they supposed to judge? The, the wisdom of what various candidates for presidency or Senate or House are saying when it comes to the world. So my, my whole goal is to give people some of the foundation they need so they can make better informed decisions and then they can hold to account the people who, who win these elections. Is there an irony in this pandemic, something that's deeply counterintuitive in that it is perhaps the penultimate example of how the world is, is interconnected, how borders don't matter. And at the same time, it will lead people to shelter in place, not only literally, but metaphorically with respect to how they view the rest of the world. There is an irony that you have this global crisis of unbelievable dimensions. And so much of our response is national or, or local or personal. It's understandable, it's ironic, but it's also inadequate and tragic. And we need, a, we need a global response to deal with the public health aspects of this, obviously to deal with the economic aspects of this. And then we need to look at our global health machinery so we're better prepared to either prevent or deal with the next pandemic we don't, or the next outbreak of an infectious disease. We do not want this to become the new normal. Uh, it's, it's just too expensive in terms of life and economics. With respect to economics, talk a little bit about that, because one of the potential dangers is that the economic devastation from this will be also counter to the reality of the world having to be more interconnected. There's so much talk about the, the costs of this from, from an economic point of view to Europe, how it will impact the European project, and how it will impact the rest of the world in that regard, because it will be so devastating economically. Well, it will be devastating economically, and a lot of uh, countries that are already rocky in terms of stability could go over the edge, could cause massive flows of refugees, could create spaces for terrorists and other you know, drug cartels to, uh, to grow uh, up in. The only way the world is going to get through this is going to be with massive economic help provided by the, the wealthier countries. Uh, so we're going to have to go into further debt to do it. I understand that. It's temporary, and hopefully then you know, these, these loans will over time be 
be paid back. Well, and ultimately, we need these economies to recover if we're going to, for example, be able to export uh, to them, if they're going to be strong partners in dealing with us on, on a whole range of uh, challenges. So this, you know, this is a temporary, it's a deep, but temporary setback. And we're going to have to first provide relief to workers and businesses like we're doing this in this country. Then we're going to have to recover here and uh and around the world but you know we've recovered from from wars in the world wars in the past we recovered from the 2008 financial crisis so we can recover from this you talk about the whole world you hopscotch around the world in in the world a brief introduction talk a little bit about europe and the impact that you see all of this having on europe specifically and and its interconnection mm-hmm. and the european project in general well, let's take a step back europe is one of the great uh, projects. It's one of the uh, the great pieces of creative foreign policy making. And after World War II, think, you know, twice earlier in the century, Europe was the venue for these terrific world wars, just awful in their scale, their death tolls. And after after World War II, the leaders of the new Europe essentially decided to weave together their economies, so war would become impossible and unthinkable. And here we are, three quarters of a century later, and guess what? It's worked. France, Germany, Britain, Italy, the main countries of Europe uh, have become very close. Obviously, with Brexit, you know, the Brits are now moving in the opposite direction. But major war in Europe among the more European countries has become uh, unthinkable. I think the challenge now, though, is that the European Union, this project that's done so well for 70 years, has hit something of a wall. And we'll probably need to come up with a new balance of power between the institutions of Europe and the institutions of the 25, 27, 28 countries that are, that are members of the, of the European Union. They're, they're essentially going to have to come up with a new charter, and given what's going on, it's almost like the American experience with the Articles of Confederation and then the Constitution, except Europe's going to probably go in the other direction. Rather than becoming more integrated, I think the pendulum's going to shift more in the direction of individual governments. Given the level of interconnection, is it easier for those that want to destabilize the world to do so, thinking specifically about Russia, but, but really in a broader sense as well? It's interesting. Look, governments, terrorist groups, other, others can destabilize the world here. The destabilization has taken place because of a global issue. But I'm still impressed by the potential of governments and others to come together. We could, in dealing, say, with a this crisis, one can imagine a vaccine or, or drug therapies emerging from around the world, helping everyone. One can imagine economic collaboration to, to, to get through this, the potential for collaboration in every other global, to meet every other global challenges there. The real question is whether we, we, we meet it. There, history is always made up of this combination of forces of, uh, if you will, darkness and light, disorder and order. And the challenge of foreign policy is to see that the more positive forces uh, are, are dominant, whether we make that so. That, that's on us. But the possibility to have things turn out well is always there. You've written a lot about the fact that nothing is inevitable, that decisions that, that nations make really matter and have a profound impact. To what extent does global leadership, national leadership, strong national leadership, strong global leadership matter? And are we seeing a dearth of leadership right now? And what does that mean? You're right. Nothing is inevitable. I've been lucky enough to work for four different presidents. And I've been in the Oval Office when all sorts of decisions were, were made. And you always think, wow, what would happen if somebody else had been here making that 
decision. You see the decisions being made in this crisis around the world, how good they've been in countries like South Korea, Taiwan, uh, Germany, Australia, and how poor they've been uh, here in the United States, in Italy, Brazil. Uh, and what this tells me, again, is the the quality of leadership matters far more than the, the nature of the, the, the political system. And coming back to what you asked, nothing is inevitable. Uh, so much of history is determined by what people, what people do with the cards they're dealt. And my whole argument is that we're dealt the cards of this whole raft of security problems, familiar ones and unfamiliar ones, but how we respond to them, that, you know, we, we will essentially write history. So if you want to be an optimist, uh, you should be, because we, we, the opportunity is there to get it right. The real question is whether we seize that opportunity. As you look at countries around the world, who gets this the best? Who understands the reality the best of what we're talking about? I think there's a number of leaders who impress impressiveness. Uh, the president of uh, France, Macron, the prime minister of uh, New Zealand. I think the German chancellor uh, gets it. I think the Canadian prime minister gets it. I think they all understand that we're living in a in a time where there you have these new challenges, which are global in nature, and we do need a collective uh, response. No, you can't ignore these challenges, and you can't deal with them on your own. And I think that's the beginning of wisdom in this age of history. And finally, talk a bit about climate change and whether you think that that the pandemic and what we're going through now will have a positive or negative impact in address with the world addressing climate change. It's a good question. It's one I think about. Look, in principle, one lesson of the or outcome of the pandemic could be that people wake up and say, wow, we really do need collective responses to these global challenges, beginning with with climate change. And for example, when you put all this money into rebuilding businesses, uh, we could have conditions. We could say to automobile companies, we'll give you billions of dollars, but only if you achieve the following mileage standards. Or we could go around the world and sort of come up with conditionality that would that would help people get back to work help get the economy going again, and would be good for the environment. But I'm not sure we're going to do that. So could this be an opportunity wasted? Sure. And there'll be those who'll say we don't have the luxury of dealing with climate change right now. Uh, that's for tomorrow. We've got to deal with today's problem. So you could have a very short-sighted response that would waste the opportunity to help get us out of the economic uh, situation we're in and also do something about uh, climate change, which is only – getting worse. So my, my, you know, this administration doesn't take climate change, uh, seriously. So I would think that so long as, uh, this administration is in power, we're we're unlikely to see the response to the pandemic be coupled with, uh, with the creative response to climate change. Richard Haas, his latest book is the world, a brief introduction. I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you.